Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a first-time filmmaker's journey. I am your host, Josh Lindsay from the Movie Proposal Podcast. And with us is our first-time filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hello, Josh Lindsay. How are you today? I'm good, Christian. How are you? Good. You look Christmassy and red. You seem to be drug free. How's how's the back? <laughs> yeah, I am Christmassy today. Uh, while we're recording this, it's December twenty second, and so Christmas has not happened. I'm in a Christmassy mood. I'm almost done with sort of. I still need to do preparations for um, you know the food and a few more gift wrapping things, but I'm feeling excited. Um, we are having a, a guest, a friend of Hunter's, join us for Christmas. So. We're trying to figure out how to, you know, make that happen safely and happily for everybody. So that's good. And I am drug free. So this morning it's just, you know, my vitamins. So I'm not going to probably be as loopy as maybe I've been in the past. So <laughs> that's um, I'm sure you'll still be loopy. That's all right. That's hey, and with us is Jason Rugg sporting a Nightmare Before Christmas theme. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey there, Josh. I'm looking at Christian at, above Jason. Christian's in bright red and the lighting, and and then Jason has got the black and the gray. I mean, you look good, Jason. I'm just, it's just you know, stark. <laughs> yeah. De- definitely so, not uh, festive. <laughs> well, Nightmare Before Christmas, you know. Yeah, so yeah. that's uh, all right. And with us, as she mentioned, is the business manager, manager extraordinaire. Hunter Taylor. How's it going, everyone? He's kind of looking hello. like, you know, I don't know what movie analogy you can, uh, you know, come up with, but he's sort of like the Dark Lord or he's sort of some sort of, uh, you know, ominous shadow presence <laughs> over there. You know, if you don't know, you can watch this on our YouTube channel uh, if you're just listening. But yeah, anyway, I don't know, Josh, what analogy you can come up with for Hunter today, but... Well, well, when you're in a room completely made of windows, it's a little hard to control your lighting. <laughs> yeah, he's in our family. Well, we're looking down at him and he's smaller than the rest of us. And it's got this echoey feel to his voice. And so it's like uh, huh. it's something of a Terry Gilliam movie or <laughs> Senator Palpatine or something. I don't know. Jor-El, I don't know. Jor-El, Jor-El's floating head. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. You know, we had to make do when Hunter came home. He was supposed to be here probably not very long. That was August. And so Hunter has this big command station. Like it's the coolest thing. You'd think it was like, you know, Starship Command with these three big monitors in our family room. And our family room has large ceilings and it's very open. So, and lots of windows. So that's where his new home is. <laughs> <laughs> Well, before we dive in for updates and so forth, um, this should be coming out December 30th. And so if you're listening to this and it's still 2020, first, I want to say it's almost over. You've made it. <laughs> and secondly, <laughs> there's time. There's still time to make a donation for your 2020 tax deductible donation. Save money. You know, Get something good out of 2020 by making a donation to the girl who wore freedom. Where can they do that, Christian? Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that here at the top of the show. Um, it, people love to donate at you know right before the end of the year for tax purposes. And so, um, if you want to donate, go to thegirlywarfreedom.com/slash/donate. And um, I really am, you know, our focus for these incoming donations right now. We have our um, costs covered for December, but I'd love to get uh, give an end of the year bonus to five of our subcontractors who did work for us to finish up the film. I have about $20,000 of invoices on my desk. I would love to at least give them, you know, a $500 payment towards those invoices. So uh, that's what we're shooting uh, for these donations for to make payments on those. So they'll have some money. They're all, um, you know, independent contractors who've had a rough time this year. So, um, you know, if you can make a donation, that would be phenomenal. Again, that's the girl who wore freedom.com slash donate. That link will still work into 2021. So if you're listening to this in 2021, um, we have about a thousand dollars a month in overhead just to keep Normandy project running and functioning. And we will need to continue to do that until our film releases, which we hope will be middle of next year, maybe around D-Day, but we've got to secure and finalize a distribution 
distribution contract, which we are still hoping for. Of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Why would we want it any other way, right? Right. Uh, Christian, what has happened in the last week? Do you have any updates? You can't talk about distribution. Is there anything you can talk about? Well, yeah, you know, I started thinking about this in the shower this morning. I don't know if you guys have shower thoughts, but I always seem to have a lot of them in the shower. And I was thinking about this morning. Um, I got an email yesterday. I, I, wa I really want to share this with you. Um, you know, um, this guy, he's a brand new first time filmmaker. And he, he had listened to our podcast. His name is Scott Homan. He has a new film uh, starting their film festival run called Witness Underground. He said, I've enjoyed your entire journey and it's helped me stay motivated with my documentary. Our festival run is just beginning and we're focusing on the spring festivals. Um, and I do think that we are going to have him on the podcast to talk about sort of his own journey. He said that Documentary First is a great concept and it's been valuable to me. I've been sharing it with other filmmakers on the path. So if we do have first time filmmakers that have just discovered our podcast, we're so thankful and hopeful that this podcast will be helpful for you. Um, and we're interested in your journey. So you can write me at Christian at normandystories.com. And, you know, uh, we'd love to have you on. So thank you, Scott, for reaching out to us. I think we have a couple of others that we're going to be talking to here soon. Uh, and I, I realized that this journey as a first time filmmaker is very interesting because it's combined with your life. So over the last week, there have been a few things, you know, here we finished our film June 6th, technically, but we have had to continue the marketing. So we meet every week um, on Sunday with the marketing and social media team. And we talk about keeping the interest of our audience up because numbers on social media are really important uh, for film festivals and for distributors. We have continued to get in festival information. So I continue to get um, you know, uh, rejections that I don't talk about probably at least a couple a week. And um, I do talk about the acceptances and we do have uh, three of those coming up. So we'll talk about those near the end. Uh, but there, those things have happened this week. Another big one is again, like I said, we've tracked down a list of distribution deliverables that we know we need to be working on once that distribution deal is finalized. And one of those is the closed captioning process. And so it's complicated in our film because it's a dual language film. And so half of the film is already subtitled. And so we tr we've been trying to figure out, do we need to close caption the entire film in English or only those things that have not been subtitled? And how do we do that? Well, so far we have decided to close caption the entire film. We used revrev.com to do that. This 89 minute film cost about $112 to uh, close caption. We sent them the video, we sent them the script, and they then created an SRT file to uh, send back to us that we will then include with our film. And of course, we will need to double check those closed captions to make sure they're actually accurate. Uh, we are having Bill, our editor, and uh, Sam King, uh, a volunteer, come on to do that. So that's one of the deliverables we need to work on. And um, I'm still waiting to hear back from the Library of Congress. Like I said before, we filled out the application online with the help of um, Trevor Schmidt, uh, who you know came on an, an earlier podcast and helped us with that. And then we sent in the file of the film to the Library of Congress. We know it was received, but as of yet, I don't have that copyright number. So waiting for that. And we have continued to talk about the next thing. What are we going to be doing next? And we at the last episode, Josh, you asked a very telling question. The three of us had talked about sort of the nature of the industry right now and what it was like and what Hunter and I have been talking about and Bill and I have been talking about. Um, I know for a fact that I want to make more films and I know that I want to make them with Bill Ebel. And so now that I'm 
thinking about the next thing, um, there's a lot of things that come into play. Um, how am I going to finance this film? Of course, is the first obvious question. Um, and also, who am I going to do this film with? Well, Bill and I created a successful product with the girl who wore freedom and we have a wonderful working relationship. We've worked together for 20 years and I really don't want to make any other films without him. And I would like him to be a full partner this time. Last time uh, we, uh, you know, I, he was a paid employee that I worked really hard to raise his salary. He's about the only one that got paid. And um, the joke in the industry is in indie films, the editors really are always the only one that gets paid. Um, so, so I'd like to do that again. But the question is, how do we do that financially, particularly with we are older, you know, we're not young. Um, and so Bill has a family of five and needs sort of steady income. And we both are gig economy workers where I have a day job of a voiceover actors. He has a day job as an editor. And the way we finance the girl at War Freedom, as everybody knows, we looked for grants. We looked for you know, we decided not to go the investor route because we didn't want to have the pressure of, you know, giving a return. And because we weren't sure if we could sell things or how much we would make. We see the bottom dropping out. You used to have an upfront cost. If you got distribution, normally you could negotiate some money upfront and then you would get more residuals after it was licensed out. That really doesn't happen anymore especially in the documentary world, they don't give you any upfront money. You have to wait, you know, 18 months to two years before you start seeing anything. So, um, so anyway, we, we looked, we decided not to go the investor route and we decided to look for grants, which we got none. Um, we decided to do the crowdfunding, which we raised about $32,000, but we learned that that effort uh, is almost as hard as making the film itself and takes, you know, a, a lot of people working on that to make that possible. And then we decided to partner with a fiscal sponsor and sort of do our own fundraising. And we did live events for that where we would screen the film and get feedback and also ask for donations and sell merchandise that we had made. Um, and so that served several purposes, building an audience, um, raising funds and getting screening feedback to make our next edits. And that's the way we decided to do this. But that was, it took a long time. We still don't have all the money that we need to finish. Um, it was exhausting for my family. And um, so we know I don't want to do that anymore. Um, and we still don't know, will we break even? Will we break even? Um, half of the film came from my savings or things that we as a family decided to chip in. And the other half was from the donations. So, um, so the question is still out there. And so that's why I've had Hunter researching this um, future of the film industry, because I've got to figure out, I can't do what I did before. Um, it, it took a lot of effort. I traveled a lot. I had to put out a lot of money in order to bring in just what we needed each month. Um, so we've got to figure out a new way to do this. And it would be lovely if I could get paid this time. So over the last three years, I have not been paid at all other than my day job. So the question has been, how do I have a steady source of income if I'm going to be a filmmaker? Because if I had the choice, I would stop doing voiceover, probably, except for big projects. I would be more selective and I would just work on film if I had a stable income. Bill said the same. If he could have a stable income. Uh, he would just work on the documentary films that we have coming up that we're really interested in telling. So, Josh, when you asked me the last time, you know, what do you want to be, a filmmaker or a business person? You know, I've had to look at that. And um, it's, a, it's a tough question. You said, I've told, you know, in our business, I've told people, have your day job, work on building your business. And I have done that so far. And once you get to a point where um, you have to ask yourself, is that sustainable? And so that's kind of where I am. And that's why I really wanted to know what is the state of the distribution industry? Because 
at the end of the day, if you're going to spend all your time raising money and making something, don't you want to know that you can sell it or that you can make your money back with it? Otherwise, what are you doing it for? You know, are you doing it just for your friends and family to see or to put up on YouTube or, um, or do you really want to make a living of it trying to sell things? Well, if I choose that second option, I want to make money to break even. And also I'd like to do this as a full-time job. If you're looking at the independent distribution model as it exists now, let's say, you know, you do it the way that I did it. For somebody that's my age, 54, that, and if a film takes, it's all math. If a film takes five to eight years from start to finish, when you start seeing money, how many more of those can I make? One, two. So those are the questions that I've been thinking about since you asked me that question, Josh. Well, real, real quick, I, I just want to address this off the top. You got to take age out of the equation. There are so many stories of successful artists and business people and uh, whatnot who did not become successful until, you know, quote, later in life and have accomplished tons. So stop thinking age. That, that's got to be the first thing. You're just limiting yourself by saying, like, well, I'm, I'm older. You know, like we all think that stuff. Stop it. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> and uh, if anyone disagrees, you can speak up now. But I, I just think it's you're just hurting yourself by thinking that. But the other thing, too, is, is like you can you cannot uh, go into debt and become, you know, financial, put yourself in financial ruin trying to do stuff. That That's, that's also bad advice. And I don't think you're doing that. Um, but if, if you agree with that, then you have limitations. There's only so much you can do. And so I think the hope is always, we're going to make money off of this, but that can't, in my opinion, be the primary uh, factor, unless you want to build another Netflix or production house. And then you're not really an artist anymore. Then you're a person who's has got a business in the film industry. So right. if you want to be an artist, then be an artist. You do what you can. I, I immediately thought of, we've talked about this before, uh, my date with Drew, the documentary about the guy that wants to get a date with Drew Barrymore. Well, what I love is, is great things are born out of limitations. You know, if you had all the money in the world, we know what happens. You know, you you get the prequels to Star Wars, right? You know, like <laughs> when you have access to whatever you want, you know, great things don't always happen. But when you have limitations, uh, really creative things are born out of that. So in my date with Drew, he had no money. They bought a camera, a video camera, for, and they, they didn't have the money to do it. They had to return it after 30 days. So they had 30 days to make a film. And meanwhile, he's still trying to get a job. He's trying to pay his rent. Da, 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 da. And it was really out of fun knowing that nothing may come from this. And, you know, for every, I don't know, thousand of these types of films that are made, one of them becomes successful. I don't know. Um, but they did it regardless. Right. And I think that's what you have to decide is, is like, man, do I want to make films Then I'm OK? What's my you know, we're not going to go into debt. I'm not a business person. We're going to work within our limitations um, and then see what comes from it. And I, I think more artists need to run with that instead of waiting for the things to the stars to align and, and money to fall into your lap. And, you know, how are we going to do this is the how rarely shows up until, you know, the why, you know, is there, you know what I mean? You know, you'll figure out how, when you know what you want and why you want it. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that completely because, and I've said that from the beginning, Ken Burns said, you know, just go do it. Just go do it. Don't wait for limitations. Just go do it and you will figure it out. That is absolutely the truth. And you're right. I want people that are listening for this for the first time not to use that as an excuse. Um, but at the same time, I've seen the other side of it where people say, let's just go do this and let's go shoot this. And yes, my date with Drew uh, was a success. I even think of the Blair Witch Project, right? I mean, there are several people that just went out and did something and it was like lightning that struck that took off. 
But for every one of those, and when were those? Like, can you look up those dates, Jason? When was my date with Drew? And when was the Blair Witch Project? That was back in a different day and a different age and a different time. And when so you what? do- So what? The, re, the, the so what is the industry's changing. So if the- Again, But you still need money. You still need money to, to make this stuff. And, and it's going to look different than the Blair Witch Project or whatever. But like, you're still not going to know- you 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 are not going to have everything your ducks in a row and the money in your lap and, and everything work out like you you still being an artist there there are true things about being an artist that have always been true uh and even though things change over history technology and how how business works and things like that you know if you want to be an artist and make films there there are true things realities about being an artist that have been always true and that, that's, again, goes back to well, what do you want to do? You want to be an artist? Then you got to go make art. Well, I, I think that's interesting because as, as we've been going and doing all of this research, one of the best analogies that keeps coming back into my head about how the entire industry and all of the different sub-industries are going through disruptive innovation really reminds me of um, kind of how music the, the music industry evolved over time. So I, I definitely agree with Josh in the sense of in the past, there was this clear delineation between an artist and a business person. And that may have been especially true in the music industry, you know, early on where there weren't very many recording booths. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of like, Oh brother, where are they? If we go that far back, you know, there, there's this one radio station and you, you know, go in there, and then it's shifted and then you started getting business managers. You started getting managers for the band. Um, and then you'd have to go and do battle of the bands. And there was this competitive um, upward climb through, uh, through multiple different gatekeepers. And as ACDC, the famous words of ACDC, it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. And that absolutely was very much delineated between the performers and then the, the business side of the house. Um, but but as technology started to change and as the industry started to be disrupted, a lot of really interesting things started to happen. One of the biggest being what's called vertical integration throughout the industry. So there's always a threat that suppliers will vertically integrate forward and they'll become the producers and then they'll vertically integrate forward and become the supply or the distributors. And then, so there's a lot of different threats when you're analyzing an industry about that forward integration or the backward integration, but it's all vertical integration. And with technology, that makes that threat of integration drastically higher. So now what are a lot of, a lot of uh, musicians and artists doing? Well, not clearly, there's still going to be um, a, a different distribution in terms of how many people make it to the top, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the rest of them don't really make anything. Now people for example, I'm thinking of, you know, Justin Bieber, who put something on YouTube and then becomes astronomically famous. Now, that's going to be one of those people who's who makes it to the top. But there's also other artists out there who will, you know, they get their they get their music, uh, their instruments, they record their instruments, they edit their music, and then they distribute online, whether it's through one of the different streaming channels as well. So they are now starting to do all of the different aspects of business as well. And so there, because they are able to figure out a market that they can tailor to, and they can figure out distribution channels, they can figure out how to do their post-production, and they can figure out how to do the produce the production, and then they can figure out how to you know how to handle the supply of sourcing the materials. So we're starting to see this blend, primarily due to technology, which is now forcing, um, it's well not even forcing, it's incentivizing artists to. Uh, to start integrating into the different areas. And that technology does allow um, creatives to kind of take more control over their destiny in terms of how their art um, reaches audience. And I think that that's actually, you know, the music industry definitely hit that first. But as I'm going through all of this research, that analogy really holds true uh, from what I can see in, you know, from the Ibis World Industry reports it's basically telling me the same thing is about to happen or we're currently in it and it's going to continue happening actually at an exponential rate. So reporting in with the numbers, uh, <laughs> my date with Drew was uh, 2004 and Blair Witch Project was 1999. And so both those were well before any of the streamers or anything like that were 
available. And so like the cool thing is now just listening to all this, this talk, I'm, I'm thinking about how, you know, I have a friend who he made a feature film uh, and he put it up on Amazon prime and he gets a little bit of money from that. And he just, you know, that, that was his best way to do it. That was the best way that he saw. He didn't have the connections or anything like that. So he made a film and he put it up on Amazon prime and I don't know how much money he's made there, but he makes something every time someone watches it, he makes something. So that's, that's a great point. Yeah. I think you're right. And so the question there would just be figuring out how to optimize that. Right, Jason. Yeah. Yeah. And so he definitely doesn't have like a business person or, or anyone to, to help him with that sort of thing. But I, I, I think as we start to get closer and closer to this, um, yeah, I was talking to uh, Sean McDuffie, who used to be the um, one of the producers on the Holy Post podcast um, yesterday, and he's my creative partner. And uh, we were talking about how Amazon, um, or not Amazon, Apple TV is starting to do this thing where they want to integrate every streaming service into one. So you go to Apple TV, you search, and it brings up, you know, Dairy Girls or whatever movie you're you're trying to watch, whatever show you're trying to watch, it doesn't say, hey, this is from Netflix. It just says, hey, you can watch this because you have the subscription. And we were talking about that, and there's definitely, I don't know if it's going to exist, but there's a definite possibility that, you know, you get something on Amazon Prime, it'll just pop up in that queue. If someone searches World War II documentary, it'll pop up in that queue. And you're, I think sometime in the next couple of years, you're going to see a distribution channel that's really geared towards creators that isn't just Amazon Prime, but will get on that Apple mega list. And so then your film, if you get it on that, that list, will be able to be served to people and you'll make revenue from it. It's just a matter of how do we get there. Right. Yeah. And, and we don't know what that is. But we're, like you said, we're in a state of disruption and we don't know what's going to happen. And so I don't think, I don't think there's any, I don't think documentaries are going away anytime soon, but I, I also don't know what the future is. <laughs> and so I, I think, I think it, it might seem like, oh man, the, the model's dying, but at the same time, I think this might actually, cause you know, Ken Burns, even when the model was working, was one of the only people who made money. And so if we start to see a, a, a point where power actually goes to the creators and you might make less, but you might actually be able to make a living at it. You're not going to make millions at it, but you're going to be able to make a good amount of money. I think that's a possibility. Yeah. And what you're talking about is in a sense, the self distribution model, which is becoming more and more attractive to indie filmmakers because of you're cutting out the gatekeepers and, and these big streaming services are realizing that that is sort of the future of things. And even distributors that we have spoken to distributors themselves are beginning to have their own channels on YouTube and iTunes and things like that, where after they try to license to a broadcast or cable, then they, you know, they go to streaming services, then they go to ABOD, which is, you know, advertising video on demand. Um, and, you know, and then ultimately, they'll just put it up there, and they'll make DVDs. I mean, those things are still happening. Um, but I'll, and, I'll tell you this, it does not look good for the, the incumbents in the distribution industry. Those, those incumbents <laughs> right now are actually, uh, when you analyze their SWAT it's the SWOT analysis, the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. They're actually facing a real uphill battle unless they can figure out how to innovate right now. I would anticipate most of the people who are in the distribution industry, not including the online streaming, because that's actually a separate industry, um, as according to Ivis World. And so, but the incumbents in the traditional legacy distribution industry, it's not looking good for them. And, and again, I will say it goes back to what I saw happen in the voiceover industry. So I do have experience in the voiceover industry when we went from analog to digital. There was a huge disruption during that time. And over the course of time, so let's say 2000 to now, 20 years over the course of time, um, we saw, I've seen, the in, I've seen the influence of the gatekeepers, the talent agents, the recording studios, uh, the ad agencies, I've seen all of that decrease because the buyer 
uh, Procter and Gamble, McDonald's, Wendy's. Uh, you know, I did something for Property Brothers. I mean, last week, they now know that they can get quality voiceover work from a union voiceover actor, or I'm now financial core, which means I can do union and non-union. Um, they know they can get quality work from an artist at bottom basement prices. And they know that that artist now has the capability to have studio quality audio from their home. And so they're cutting out all the middleman and the talent agents and the um, recording studios all try to figure out how to innovate. So one of them that I know of for sure is one in North Carolina called Procom. Procom was a big recording studio and they saw the state of the industry and they saw the prices dropping and they saw their big, huge clients going to streaming services like Voice Realm or Voice123 or Voices.com. And so they then decided to create their own, which is now called Voice Jungle. And so they still have Procom and they now own Voice Jungle. And so they're trying to figure out where the future is going. Um, and I know from a voice artist perspective, those union jobs have gone decreasingly low because they would do things like this. A company like, let's say, Publix, they would, instead of going to the talent agent, they would, to where they would have to have a union actor because Publix what you, does union work, they would go to the recording studios, which do not have to have a contract with the union, and ask the recording studios to find the talent. So the recording studios would then find a non-union talent or a FICOR talent that would do it for a bottom basement rate because they just want to work. And so now a Publix goes to a voice jungle to hire some a voice actor for 45 bucks to do a television or a radio commercial. Now, people on my end as the voiceovers, we've had to make decisions. What are we going to do? Are we going to continue to do things the old way where we have our agent and maybe we get one or two jobs a year and maybe it pays or maybe we get none this year and maybe we get one next year? Or are we going to, in my case, I chose to go financial core so that I could do union and non-union. I still have one foot in the agent world and I have one foot in the, you know, I'm on some of these other online crowdfunding places, right? And so I just see the same thing happening in the film industry. It's sort of the same disruption that we saw in the early 2000s. And I've talked to agents, ad agencies, and recording studios. And most of them went out of business. I mean, a lot of them went out of business or they merged with someone else or they're trying to figure out another way. And that's what's happening now in the film industry. And so as a filmmaker, you know, you are going to have these choices in front of you. And personally, you know, I know age doesn't make a difference, but let's be realistic. I am not the income earner for my family. I have the luxury of being married and having a home and food that my husband's salary provides. There are other filmmakers that do not have that luxury. They have a family. Well, I, I will say this though. I, I will say this, especially in defense of, of Josh's, um, Josh's point about age. Josh is actually 100% correct about that. But when, it, but it, it's funny, and I know that because Josh is in finance, so he'll he'll maybe get this uh, get this analogy. But it kind of almost reminds me about compound interests and uh, and your age over time, right? If you start when you're young and you start in you know you start saving, you start you know uh, uh, being financially responsible when you're younger, um, it actually takes a lot less for you to reach financial success later on, primarily due to that compound interest. But if you start when you're older you know, like Christian, you're now moving into the filmmaker, uh, film production industry, um, and you're a first time filmmaker, congratulations. Uh, if you're gonna start there, uh, in order for you to reach that same level of success as somebody who started off earlier, you have to figure out how the game is played. You have to figure out exactly how much you need to put into your different accounts, at what rates, at what compounding interests for the rest of the time that you're anticipating to, to um, be playing that financial game. So I, I think that there's definitely truth in what Josh was saying, which is that, age is not absolutely a hard factor, right? 
but the rules kind of change about um, about how, you know what your path forward looks like. Your path moving forward is not going to be the same as somebody you know who's starting out younger uh, because they have a bit more time, and time is a factor. But what that does mean for you is that since you are looking at saying you only want to work maybe another twenty years max, um, that means that you just have to really hone in figure out what a good business model will be, figure out what the rules of the game are and how they're played and then play them by that rules. Um, and then hopefully you can be an innovator in that space. You can you know, figure out the rules maybe before anybody else. So yes, while I think that age is not necessarily a hard limiting factor, at the same time, it does put different pressures on you. Well, and one other thing I was going to say too is in all of that disruption that I saw in my industry, as far as artists are concerned, I saw I could narrow people down into two category groups. There was one group of people that embraced this idea that we needed to become our own business owners and that we needed to become, you know, we needed to take charge of our faith. And so we had to, to become a business owner and learn how to engineer and learn how to sell ourselves and market and learn how to basically do everything a business does. Or other people who did not want to, they didn't want to learn the new technologies they didn't want to learn how to edit themselves. They didn't want to learn how to market themselves. They didn't want to learn any of that stuff. They just wanted to get the job from the agent, go in and do the job and leave. Well, unfortunately, a lot of those people, unless you're like way up at the top and famous and making tons of money, a lot of those people are not working anymore because they didn't want to look at or learn the way the industry was going. And Josh, you're right. There are people that can just do things and it's like lightning strikes. Same with voiceover, same with acting, same in any industry, industry. You can create your craft as an artist and you can do one thing and all of a sudden doors open for you. But for the majority of people like me, I was a working actor, whether it was on camera or voiceover that I didn't anticipate that really happening for me. So I had to figure out another way to make a living and be an artist. I will also say, even though your industry changed, you still had to be good at what you did. You had to bring a pro, a, a, a quality product. Yes. Yeah. You, you couldn't just say, well, I figured out the industry changed and now I know how it works. That doesn't mean you're going to get jobs or make money. You sure. know, like you, you still have to work hard at it and be good and learn the craft and so forth. And same thing with filmmaking, you know, like, just because you figure out you, you just because you guess what's coming down the pipeline doesn't mean you're going to make good films. Sure. And, uh, and so I think, again, you it goes back to what do you want? I mean, obviously, we, <laughs> I mean, there's an artist in me uh, that, you know, that wants to make movies and things like that, you know, but uh, at my stage in life, you know, I've got three kids and I'm mar- I am the, the breadwinner. Right. You know, so oh, I but, have Josh, to- but Josh, age isn't a factor, man. No, 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 no. Age isn't, but stage of life ah, okay, uh, is different. When you're 20 and you can live in the Johnson's basement for nothing, <laughs> you, know, you you got all kinds of freedom to do stuff, right? You know, and so, um, but it, my age isn't limit to me to make films, but my my priorities are different right now for sure. Now with uh, going back to the artist thing, the the the. The balancing act is is you, having a goal of making money, having success, being successful in the industry, understanding how the business model works. That's all smart. But at the same time, you got to run at it as an artist as if, I don't know if we're going to make money or not. You know, like to make quality art that you want to do, it's, you have to be willing to risk not making any money. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I mean... And I think, well, I actually, I really like what he said there at the end. And he's absolutely right about that. You have to be willing to risk that. Most people think that business people or, or entrepreneurs or whomever are risk averse. Like they just want to eliminate all risk and get everything 100% right. That's not true at all. Um, a, a business owner recognizes that there is risk out there. They just want to mitigate that risk to the point where it's, it's, uh, uh, it, it makes sense, where the reward is worth the risk. Uh, so I think the same thing goes for creatives. Absolutely. You need to understand there are no guarantees. There is risk. Art, by definition, is risky, right? Because, you know, it's self-expression, putting yourself out there. That's very difficult. Um, 
But at the same time, I think that there, I, basically what I'm saying is I think that there's a way to wed these two concepts into something that is better than either one of them. If you go too far to the business side, you'll lose the art. If you go too far to the art, perhaps you don't have a good model moving forward and you can't continue funding your, your endeavors. So I think that there's, and, and I think that that's where the industry is going. It's forcing more, more responsibility on the creatives. You know, that's kind of the position they just happen to find themselves in. It's not good. It's not bad. It just kind of is what it is. Well, and I will say, Josh, in answer to your last point, that's what I did. That is exactly what I did. I abandoned everything. I said, I don't care if it makes money or not. I feel called by God to do this project. And I really pursued it. I never quit. I had faith in what I was doing and I found a way to make it work. And, And that is why I believe we're having the success we're having today. There's no question that, you know, if you are a first time filmmaker, you do have to embrace that concept whether I make money or not, A, you know, in my experience, did I have any filmmaking experience, writing experience? I had none. I did have people around me to support me and help me. And a lot of luck or, you know, miracles of God, which is what I believe they were. Um, and I trusted those people who were skilled in, you know, compos- music composition, fi- film shooting, film editing, right? Who had honed their crafts. I did the narration. I have been doing it for 20 years, right? So we trusted people that were experts in their field to put that together. So yes, you do have to uh, hone your craft and you do have to pursue it recklessly uh, with a lot of risk. But look, I made mistakes along the way. We've already talked about this. I have about uh, on credit cards uh, for uh, post uh, pre-production and some post-production things about $50,000 worth of debt. And alone, I shouldn't have done that, but I took a risk because if I didn't do that, like I needed 10,000 extra dollars to go to Normandy in 2018. So I took a loan. If I didn't do that, would I've gone? Probably not. So I took that risk and hope that I would pay it back. There are choices all along the way, but here I am at the back end, not, you know, having not only that $50,000 in debt, but I also owe people money. And so, you know, I'm in a position where there's a lot of pressure on me every day where I'm begging people for donations, praying for them every day, you know, and then hoping that I get a distribution deal that will eventually help me to break even. That's a lot of pressure on me. You know, and so I don't. Do you do you want that? Uh, it sounds like you don't want that in the second go around, correct? That's my point. Yeah. Um, I wonder, you know, especially if someone's listening to this and and they want to make movies, you know, like I mean, earlier I, I referenced, you know, like going into debt and and because uh, it, it's easy to say that, you know, like you know, okay, you you got to go into this, in my opinion. I'm not going to go into debt, right? I'm just not going to do that. You're like, okay, great, Josh. Then what do I do? I, I don't know, right? You know, like, and and I realize there are stories out there where people uh, did that. They um, they maxed. I mean, I a business owner. He uh, maxed out. He applied for like ten different credit cards in one day because he couldn't get a business loan. He got approved in all ten different credit cards. He maxed it out. Fast forward, he's successful today in his business, but that's not good business advice. You know what I mean? I agree. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you and, can't. Yeah. And, and I totally agree with you, but it sounds like what you're about, it sounds like the way you're, where you're going is you're talking about, you know, sometimes you have to make and take on that risk, which, which I could understand and agree with. Um, I think where, what it could be beneficial for Christian though, going forward is that if she's going to be taking out debt uh, in any capacity for business, that um, that you have projections about how much you'll be able to make. You kind of you know you're not going to be 100 percent right every time you make your projections, but at the same time, it does kind of give you a little bit of window into whether or not um, funding your venture in that specific manner, whether it's debt or equity funding, um, is is smart or not. Especially when you're talking about debt uh, that accrues interest. You know, so then then we're talking about time value of money, uh, and we're talking about whether you're going to be making debt back or not. Um, compared to how what your projected you know revenue is, um, so I, 
I definitely agree with you that, you know, you can't completely 100% say I'm not going to take out debt at all. Uh, but at the same time, I'm just saying, I think that with by focusing on some business metrics, projections, market research, um, you might be able to make those decisions and be a lot more informed when you do it. Yeah, and I think I was thinking about this as you were talking, Hunter, on a first time filmmaker, on any filmmaker, on Ken Burns, there are going to be financial pressures. At the end of the day, anything you do is going to cost you money. And so where are you going to, where are those financial pressures going to come from? Each filmmaker has a decision to make. Are they going to come where you take you ask investors for money? You pitch them on your idea, your film idea. They invest in you. They give you this money. They're giving it to you because they expect a return. And a lot of films for the indie filmmaker do not make a return. Well, so especially, even- especially when you're talking about documentary. So, I mean, here's an interesting statistic from the, the Ivis World Report. Here, we'll play a little guessing game. I'll give you each one guess. Of all of the films produced in the industry, what percentage of them do you think are in the category of other? So I'll give you the different categories. You have action and adventure, you have comedy, you have drama, you have thriller and suspense, and you have other. Within other is things like musicals and documentaries. So of all of those different genres that are produced in the industry, and those are the main ones, um, what percentage do you think is other? Is this like recent numbers? Yes, yeah. This is as of 2020. 5%? Okay, Christian? I want Jason to go next because I think I know the answer. I think it'd be more like 45. I think it's going to be way higher than we expect. Okay. So give me the categories again. Action, adventure, comedy, drama, thriller and suspense, and other. And so you're talking about all of the industry. That's Hollywood included? Yes. So it's the entire film. It's the technically by Ibis World, it's called the movie and video production industry. So of all of the movies produced and sold in the industry over the span of the last five years, what percentage? Wait, wait does this include like industrial, like how to? No, no, no. no. Okay. It's, it's movies and movie. And the, yeah, it's not. Movies it's not, that are right. sold, movies that are sold and are playing on any platform. Yes, whether it's theater, whether it's on cable, whether it's on uh, uh, video on demand, whether it's DVDs. So in other is musicals? In other is comprised of musicals, documentaries, you know, shorts, all of those other different things. Okay, Josh, is your answer still 5%? I have no idea. Yeah, why not? (laughs) And Josh's is, I mean, Jason's is 45%. Mine is going to be 1%. Christian would be the closest. It is 1.4%. 1.4% of the industry is comprised of others, of which documentary is a subcategory. So when we're talking about pitching to investors and you go to the investor, they say, yeah, tell me about uh, your expected you know, returns. What's, what's your expected return? What's your total addressable market? Well, your total addressable market, if you captured 100% of the market that you're going for, cannot exceed 1.4%. And so there has to be other unique ways of figuring out how to extract that value. Now, just having a small share of market or a small addressable market is not necessarily a bad thing, but it just means that you have to figure out what the best funding model is, what the best you know business model is, what the best marketing model is, what the best you know. So, you know, that's why I think that you know, especially because we're we're seeing a lot of changes, even though the distribution industry itself is is in its uh, it's in its declining phase, right? It is it's officially in its declining phase. It is not contributing enough to the GDP per capita um, as it would be if it were I in want a mature you, growing phase. But I want you to slow down for a second. And I asked you last night at dinner if you were to sum up what you learned about the distribution industry in all your research on Ibis World. How would you sum it up? Well, I, I would sum it up basically the same way I was starting. So distribution specifically is in decline. It is in decline uh, and they are, they're, they're struggling. And it's, it's really interesting because when you go and analyze um, the current economic trends, uh, grow, uh, grow, or I'm sorry, um, per capita disposable income 
is anticipated to decrease. Now that's for a new, that's for numerous factors, uh, but per capita disposable income is, is expected to decrease. However, okay, oh, wait, wait, wait. However, at the same time, at the same time, demand for movie and videos is increasing. And yet distribution industry is in decline. So basically what all of that means to me is that movies are now going to be consumed and demanded at a greater rate, but for a lower cost. Distribution companies cannot recoup their expenses primarily because some of their main channels, their main distribution channels were movie theaters, the box office. That movie theater industry is, is also drastically in decline. It was in decline before COVID. COVID just, uh, uh, just exponentially increased its rate of decline. Uh, on top of that, that, DVD sales was another big channel for uh, for distributors, or traditional legacy distributors. DVD sales are going the age of the dinosaur, right? Because people can, at, at the most similar is they can download a digital copy and keep that copy, or they could just stream it. On top of that, um, distributors are not necessarily the best positioned to, to distribute films through video on demand, like Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Plus, uh, Amazon Prime, and Disney Plus. So essentially what we're starting to see is an entire section of the film and entertainment overarching umbrella industry, which is the distribution industry, is in decline. It's going away. Uh, their, their costs are going down, which is due to technology, which is keeping them afloat temporarily. But, you know, the sign is, is on the wall. They're, they're heading out the door. As the, that limiting cost can only go down so far, and their revenue generation is drastic, is decreasing at a faster rate than their costs are decreasing. So I anticipate traditional and legacy distribution industry completely changing, which means that there's going to be something that replaces it because it is a service that is provided and it's necessary in this pipeline, the, the supply chain. So essentially what that means to me is most likely we're seeing a consolidation of all of these different industries uh, into uh, a firm that does multiple roles. It'll be, my anticipation would be there's some that will do their own movie and video production that also distribute. So for example, Amazon or uh, Netflix, Netflix started this whole thing. Netflix started off as a publisher, as a platform, not a publisher, they started off as a platform. Now they're uh, a movie and video production company. They have Netflix originals. Same thing with Amazon, they followed suit, right? So, and then we see Disney, Disney did it the opposite way. They, they uh, forward integrated. They started off as a movie and video production company, and now they have their own platform. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing a consolidation of all of the different industries closer and closer together into one firm. One firm, which maybe has multiple subsidiaries all under their, their holding company that performs all of these different services. So essentially what that's probably going to look like for the independent filmmaker is that they're going to start have to, having to take on more of these functions moving forward. That's why I say it still reminds me of what happened in the voiceover industry. So Walgreens is one that I know firsthand because I was I'm I was part of this. Walgreens used to have an they would have a job, a TV commercial or a radio commercial or print stuff. They would go to an ad agency and they would say, "We need this done." The ad agency would go to the talent agency and say, "We need this talent." The talent agent would audition people and they would then uh, pick somebody. The ad agency would also go to a recording studio or a video house and say, we need these services. And they would, um, you know, they would do that. Well, Walgreens now does all of that in-house. They have their creatives in-house. They have their video and audio in-house. They even have talent in-house. Sometimes they hire things out. And that happened, started happening about 10 years ago, five to 10 years ago. So, I mean, here you see the complicated problem that I'm looking at. Um, we know the industry is changing and I'm sitting here trying to figure out the best way not to have the same experience making my next film as I did on this film, because I would like to pay myself and I would like to sell my film. And so that's one thing <laughs> I've learned in 2020. I mean, I was going to ask you, as you look back over this year, you know, we're coming up to the end of the year. 
Um, we're almost at our 100th podcast. That will happen around February 3rd. Um, so, you know, as you have either listened to the podcast and, and if you're listening, you know, tweet to us or put a comment on uh, tweeting is probably a great way to do it, but you could also do it on um, Facebook or on Instagram. Um, talk to us about what you have learned um, as you've listened to this podcast, uh, what, what pieces of information have been most helpful. So I'm going to ask you, Jason, you, Josh, and even you, Hunter, uh, what are some of the most important things you can take away from the podcast or the things you've learned over the last year? I, I can start, I guess. Um, you can give us a few things, Jason. Yeah. I, I think the big thing, and this is going to sound like I had this, I had jotted down a few thoughts on this before we started. So this, this might sound like I'm just saying, well, here's what I just learned, you know, from this last episode, but it's really, it's, it's the just making something. That's the big thing. And this year, you know, my creative partner and I, we made something for, you know, we, we made something last year. We made something this year and we really hit it hard this year. And part of that was the inspiration of just knowing you Christian and knowing documentary you know the documentary you made it was just because you got up and did it because yeah. you knew you had to do it otherwise no one was going to do it so you had to do it um and so that was the big thing i learned um the other thing was to involve uh lawyers uh early <laughs> which that that i just learned from you i that that wasn't uh, uh me and uh then um if you're gonna make a documentary figure out your rights Bible early. <laughs> That's something I learned too. <laughs> oh, something Sherlock. <laughs> yeah. Make sure you sign, have all those papers signed. And yeah, it's interesting to have watched your process, Jason, because yes, you have just done something uh, and you created it. And I urge everybody to do that. But I'd also say learn from my mistakes. And that is for sure. Have a lawyer on early uh, make sure that you have all of your deals and papers signed correctly. Uh, you're ready to go before you produce anything and you have, you know, agreements with your co-creators. Um, you know, make sure you do title research, stuff like that. You're right. I'm glad you learned something, Jason. That's encouraging to me. Woohoo! All right, Josh, what have you learned? Well, <clears throat> uh, a lot, actually. Um, but just a couple things that, that jump out, you know, you know, one week you have good news, another week you have bad news. And, you know, things are never as bad as they seem and things are never as good as they seem, right? And the lesson there is to persevere and just keep moving forward regardless, right? Like you haven't made it, but you haven't failed as long as you keep going forward. So it's one foot in front of the other. And just what Jason said, um, you know, just go out and do something. And so, perseverance in light of how good things may seem or how bad they may seem. You got to keep moving forward. Yeah. All right, Hunter. Uh, I've learned that um, Jason doesn't speak a lot, but when he does, he's insightful and hilarious. So that's probably the biggest thing. Uh, other than that, I've, I've learned that there's, there's the film and entertainment industry is so unique. Um, in in some frustrating ways, but also in some really beautiful ways. And it's it's this really interesting thing that I've noticed about all of the creatives, which is they truly have this love and this passion um, for their art, which you would think it's it's very similar to people who make products or who who do services, but it's it's there's something different about it. And I'm still learning that through through talking on this podcast and just hearing how um, you know how a creative approaches you know filmmaking. And I, I think it's interesting and I want to keep learning more about it. And I would say um, through all, however, 90 something episodes that we have done through my whole experience as a first time filmmaker, um, I would say that embarking on your future as a filmmaker is still valuable no matter what. I have learned so much about myself. I've learned so much about other people. I've learned so much about managing money and managing a business. I've learned, I've created communities of people that have been connecting and, and providing meaningful work for others. All of those things have been so 
uh, incredibly valuable and rich for me. Um, I've created, you know, a project, finished it, and people have recognized it as good. That, you know, has been so valuable. This journey has taught me so much about myself. It's made me a better person, a better filmmaker, a better businesswoman. Um, And so filmmaking is a valuable journey to set out on. And Josh is right. You were going to have successes. You were going to have failures. And and you just have to choose not to let those defeat you. Get up the next day and ask yourself, okay, what is the next thing I have to do to move the ball forward at least one half a yard and do that thing? And just don't quit. It may take you five years. It may take you 10 years. Um, but don't quit. And then once you've got it made, the hardest part is yet to come. The filmmaking was the easy part. Figuring out what to do next with this product that you have has been the most challenging part. Whether it's getting into film festivals, finding distribution, figuring out how to make money, the business of it. I mean, that's why we're talking about business right now because that's where I am. That's the hardest part. So study, research, learn, listen. Ask yourself, what do I want to be and how do I want to get it done? Those are the things I've learned in 2020. I think this was depressingly encouraging. <laughs> depressingly <laughs> encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> See, Hunter's right. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. It sounds well, like very good. is that what you said, Josh? Yeah, I was waiting for the VeggieTales, you know, so what we have learned applies to our lives today. God <laughs> has a lot to say in, in his book. book. Right. We have a lot to say on this podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, before we wrap up, just a quick reminder, uh, whether it's 2020 when you're listening to this or 2021, uh, please, uh, you know, consider making a donation at the Girl Who Wore Freedom. And that uh, is tax uh, deductible. So that's cool. Um, I uh, also uh, film festivals, anything coming in January, which you be aware of? Yes. So just uh, the girl is our website. The girl slash donate is where you can go to donate. There's also fun items in our shop for sale. And we do have film festivals coming up, really interesting options. So there's the channel uh, Chandler film festival in Arizona. It's one of the fastest growing film festivals in Arizona. It will be online at a drive-in, and in theaters, and it will be January 21st through January 24th, and our film will be playing on January 24th at 1.35 in a theater. Now, I'm not, I don't have enough details yet um, about whether it's a drive, I think it is in the real theater, uh, but we will have those details on the girlywarfreedom.com slash festivals, If you want to follow the project, as we get more details, we will put them there. And the next one is the Flathead Lake Film Festival. It's coming up January 29 through 31. This film festival model is also very interesting. It will be live in Polson, Montana, um, January 29th through uh, the 31st. They will have an encore version of it, January 31st through February 4th. And I don't really understand that because I don't understand why it wouldn't be just January 29th through February 4th. I don't know. I don't get that. We'll have more information about that on our website. And then they're going to do it virtually afterwards. So it looks like it will be available virtually February 4th, uh, February 4th through, or February 5th through March 4th. So about four weeks. Um, And then we have the Lake Michigan Film Festival in February that we just heard about, and we do not have a lot of information about that. But again, as that information becomes available, it'll be on the girlywarfreedom.com slash festivals. Awesome. Well, very good. Very exciting year, 2020. Uh, looking forward to 2021. All exciting news about distribution and and money pouring in and new <laughs> projects and new business endeavors and uh, flying airplanes and all kinds of good stuff. Right. So yeah. Hope so. Uh, well, hope hey. So. Yeah. 
Hey, what? I was just going to, I was going to wrap it up. I was going to wrap it up. Oh, well, and I was going to say happy new year. If you're listening to this, oh, happy, happy new, year. new year. We all hope that 2021 is going to be much better for everyone, even though I don't think all of our problems will be solved. Uh, hopefully there will be some encouraging ones in the future. Awesome. And uh, to you, the listener, thank you for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you so much for listening, for donating, and for following along on our journey. If you are able to make a donation this week, we would really appreciate it. We are supported by donors who give us $100 or less, so anything helps. Also, if you're able to share the news about the girl who wore freedom with your friends and family, please do that on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or email. And sign up for our newsletter at thegirlwhowarefreedom.com. Please go to thegirlwhowarefreedom.com slash donate to make a donation today.